Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we chatted with an essayist on faith, learned the truth about the migrant caravan, and get the lowdown on starting your own business. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for November 23, 2018. Melanie Adcock chatted with Ari and Peter Krychek about what entrepreneurs need to know about running their own business. The couple organizes finance training for women in tech, and the two discuss the nuts and bolts of running your own company. Texting Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our, our next guests today are Ari and Peter uh, Krychek. Um, Ari and Peter, welcome to the show. Uh, how and where do women get stuck in their personal and professional uh, advancement, in your opinion, and based on what you've seen? I think from a lot of our events, we see many women telling us how it's so hard to find balance, right? Mm -hmm. Because they feel like they have so many things going on all at once. They want to maintain their career, but they also want to make sure that their own life is like a real life. They want to be social as well and have this social life as well and maybe also building families. So a lot of the time finding balance is very important for them. We talk a lot about that. Um, many of our attendees and members also asking us a lot about, hey, right now I feel like I'm not a good fit in this path anymore. Where do I go or what resources can I um, try to find or read upon so that I can figure out what is next for me? What's the next level for me? Or like, where do I want to go next, pretty mm -hmm. much? So I think those are the two main things that we keep hearing over and over from our members. Yeah, and well, what, what are some ways for, for women to crawl out of that place of being stuck? Like, how do you get unstuck, shall we say? I think that's a lot from uh, ourselves too, right? I, I often hear people like, hey, I actually stuck at this. But the, the part that when you actually realize that you're already stuck in something, that's great. You identify the problem at least, right? Now it's just a matter of that. How are we getting this out and or finding others who can tell you more about it and maybe like point you to the right direction or just like, Let's talk. So I think when they come together at our events, we keep hearing and seeing how everybody just being so open about it because it is a very intimate setting. Therefore, we just feel like, hey, mm -hmm. now I know you. I know your story. What's your current challenge? Let's talk about it. Is there a way that maybe I can help you? Or if I can't help you, maybe I can point you to somebody else that may be able to help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, well, well, you know, going to a bar and meeting three or 400 people has its place. Um, and, <laughs> yes. you know, it, it's very different to have a smaller group to, and to know so intimately someone's story, too. That's a that's very good that you that you have that at your events. And, uh, and finance is, is also an important element for women in their advancement as far as uh, their careers, uh, equal rights, uh, getting paid correctly and everything. Um, can you tell us how that plays a role in, in your mission and programming as well? Sure, I, I can uh, handle that part. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, finance, just kind of in, in the general topic of just budgeting and all those things, a lot of people don't think that budgets are ever for them, or they don't even think that they need to do budgeting or even think about finances. The money will come eventually, you know, the American dream. Mm -hmm. The reality is money is probably one of the first things you should be thinking of. If you can't be making the 
money or the budgets right now you have you really have to start thinking about it to see if the line you're going towards uh, if you want to be a designer a programmer uh, a flower shop person a consultant whatever it may be if you can't make the money work well most people don't even think about it and you have to mm-hmm. so you have to be planning for it you have to be figuring out the strategies to make sure you have the money and then keep it and how to use it appropriately and uh, we found that some people ignore the topic, which is kind of interesting as you start talking about money and they shut down, close themselves up and they're like, well, come on, you, you know, how much money did you make this year? Well, I don't know. I can't talk about it. Well, you have to talk about it. This is how you figure out the business side of these things. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing a business and doing it for your own personal life, that's one thing. Sure, you can you know, keep that personal. That's you and yourself, but you should still probably figure out a strategy to you know, how to use your money and how to leverage it appropriately. But for business, it's a topic that shouldn't be closed off and a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. A very, very excellent point. Uh, especially when we talk about going from uh, you know, being an employee to something like owning your own company and, and making that transition to business owner. Uh, that's a, a topic that might be hard for people to talk about or get help around. It's more scary that uh, well, legalities are legalities, but running a business, uh, you talk to somebody about a Schedule C, for example, and mm-hmm. they're like, what the heck's a Schedule C? And you're like, oh, geez. Well, okay, uh, well, you have to start thinking about the business papers you need, what things you need to file, what, uh, do you have employees? Okay, how are you going to pay the employees? How, are you going to pay them by check in hand or automated? Uh, what are your tax forms? What are your legal forms to make sure they're, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all when just like you said, if you're going from self uh, from an employee to self-employed to owning a company, it is a huge transition because you, at that point you are literally making every single decision for yourself and for people you are now legally responsible for mm-hmm. uh, as a business owner, and that is tough for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, um, and you're sounds like you're getting um, getting the word out about the some serious challenges that the people will face and helping them out with that. It mm-hmm. sounds good, and then. Um, when it comes to career advancement, you know, training and technology come into play um, as well, um, also running your own business, all of that. Uh, how does that uh, factor into the events that you have? We love technology. Yeah, I think it plays a lot. And I mean, it plays a big role for a lot of our events, specifically to the online events that we start creating in the past, I would say, year or so, right? So my point in creating those online events is to give more access to people outside of Chicago because we do actually get interest from outside of the city and a couple of people have been reaching out to us, hey, when you guys coming to, let's say LA or like New York or something. So having the technology for us to be able to explore other um, option and events so that we can deliver it to them was completely big for us. Mm-hmm. Technology is our way to help our community uh, grow and help uh, others, uh, you know, help each other. It's not just that technology is there to, oh, cool, we have a cool new little widget. No, it's an actual tool, a device that's part of a process, that's part of a strategy. It's there for a darn good reason to make our life simple, but also to help the community, well, come together uh, and learn and grow. And it's kind of fun that it's, people think that technology might be some weird, evil, scary thing. We've had the news recently uh, that Facebook is uh, in being sued by multiple countries and all those fun things. I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, the point there is that technology isn't scary. If it's used properly, you can. there's a place, just like these microphones here, there's a, a place for them. If it's used appropriately, it's a phenomenal tool to help make things better. Mm-hmm. That's right. That is, that is absolutely it. 
and in your in your um, projects and events um, support women entrepreneurs. Um, how how many of them are, are running tech related companies that you've um, that you've encountered and, and met with and worked with? I think from many of them who attended our events and part of them um, who are the members, I would say the majority of them are running um, a tech companies, right? And oftentimes they, a lot of their needs actually still revolves in general about women topic or women uh, personal development. But yeah, majority of them actually do run for tech. Well, that is really interesting. Uh, um, now some, um, some of the biggest challenges that women uh, founders face today, um, it, it, it kind of varies, but um, I thought I would ask you what, what you think, um, what their challenges are in, from your experience. From my own personal experience, I would say finding the the right or the positive community, and I found that to be true with others who seems to getting very specific about where do actually they want to spend their time and investment in terms of connecting with others and then making sure that that specific community is actually safe for them and it actually being supportive and mm -hmm. not just saying that they're supportive but actually do being supportive you kind of know mm -hmm. how it is here i feel like there are so many options out there and there's gonna be one specific community that will be a good fit for you call it your tribe or whatever it is right but to be able to find a right community I think that's one of the challenges that a lot of women that I've met throughout our years have tell us. chatted with author Megan O'Giblin about her latest collection of essays on faith and the Midwest. O'Giblin discussed how premillennial fundamentalism has impacted global politics, why NPR makes her itch, and how doomsday preparation has gone mainstream. Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, and Jamie Trecker discuss the world of literature every Sunday at 11 a.m. Megan has written a book called Interior State. It is a collection of essays. It is out now, again, as I mentioned, from Anchor Books. That's actually a part of Penguin Random House. Uh, let's take it away. This is an interesting uh, collection of essays. Uh, it touches on a lot of stuff. Of course, you uh, went to school here in Chicago. You attended uh, Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and uh, the, the essays in this book touch on faith and losing your faith as well as a number of other contemporary issues. Can you kind of give us an overview of, of uh, what you like to talk about in, in your writing, Megan? Yeah, so I, um, let's see, I started writing essays in around 2011, which was uh, several years after I left Christianity and left the church completely, um, and started writing about that process sort of a way of, as a way of, I guess, working through some of those issues that have been unresolved and sort of making sense of that part of my life. Um, so a lot of the essays talk about, you know, growing up uh, in an evangelical fundamentalist home. I grew up mostly in Michigan, um, was homeschooled up until 10th grade, was taught, you know, creationism as a child. And um, then 
uh, yeah, the process of leaving the church. And then um, I also write a lot about living in the Midwest. I've lived um, in this region for most of my life, in Michigan, then in Chicago, in Wisconsin. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm interested in the Midwest as, you know, I think it's a place where people, young people often leave, particularly if they have intellectual or artistic ambitions. It's, you know, common to go to New York or go to California or somewhere sort of more... Uh, cosmopolitan and glamorous, and uh, I never did that. So I guess um, you know a lot of the essays are making sense of why I'm here and what it means to live here and to be a Midwesterner in 2018. I think a really good entry point for people who are unfamiliar with Megan's writing is uh, the essay in here called "On Subtlety." It appeared. I didn't see it when it appeared in Tin House, but it appeared earlier this year, I guess, in the uh, the literary journal Tin House. Yeah. And um, it's it's not as long as some of the other ones, and it's it's a great intro to, to your style, I think. Um, the essay talks about, <clears throat> excuse me, it talks about uh, people responding to your writing, either in writing workshops you've been in or, or people who have read your work. And, and I think you said the most often adjective used to describe your writing was subtle. Um, yeah sometimes as a compliment or maybe a backhanded compliment um but that's one of the things i love about your work is that um you're able to cover a really wide range of subjects even if it's if it's often through the lens of of uh, a, a former believer y your research is just incredible i mean there there will be times where there's like two or three lines where i could tell that there had to be hours and hours of reading behind that and um I, I was just wondering how, how tough it is to be that kind of writer, especially as a freelancer, you know? I mean, it's one thing to be on staff somewhere and be able to do that kind of uh, deep dive work, but it, it's a whole other animal, I would imagine, when you're freelancing. How, yeah. how difficult has it been for you to, to survive? <laughs> um, yeah. Here, yeah. Well, there's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question. It's a, like a very uh, honest question. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most uh, economically lucrative uh, way to make a living, if at all, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, I, lo I did, I wrote a lot of these essays. Um, I guess the journalistic term would be on spec. You know, they weren't assigned. I just was interested in the topic and did a lot of research um, on my own and sort of had no idea whether anybody would be interested in the topic and yeah I do do quite a lot of research before I even begin the writing process and it helps that I'm writing about topics that I feel like I have a personal investment in you know so I'm writing about I have an essay about the theology of hell which was something I really struggled with when I was um, in at Moody Bible Institute and sort of in the process of leaving the faith and so you know that was I guess writing that essay and doing the research was a way for me to revisit that topic and, and sort of look at the whole long history of hell throughout Christianity, through many centuries of Christianity and how it's evolved, which is something I was not taught as a Christian. I was taught like a very narrow form of, you know, the sort of fundamentalist interpretation of, of hell, which is that, uh, you know, everybody who hasn't said the sinner's prayer is going to spend eternity in hell. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of my essays grow out of these like a sense of personal curiosity so it doesn't feel like work when I'm doing it it seems like something that's very urgent for me to figure out and make sense of um, 
So that's helpful. And I only write about topics that I'm deeply interested in. You know, I think it's really difficult if somebody, you know, I've had editors sometimes like pitch an idea of, do you want to write about this or that? And it's like, if there's not some sort of personal connection to it for me, it's difficult to get up the motivation to do that kind of work. Yeah, you know, that essay that you mentioned on hell was uh, interesting personally to me because um, on a personal note, one reason uh, my mother actually uh, left the faith or a deeper faith was because she was told in school that animals couldn't go to heaven because uh, they didn't have souls. And I've, I've remembered that through much of my life. And so when I was reading that essay, uh, I was like, you know, I personally wouldn't want to go to heaven if Little Dash wasn't there with me. But, you know, maybe that's too much. But was that yeah. something also that, like, triggered a, a loss of faith for you, that kind of strict... Um, your friends won't be here if they don't say these literal words, which seems kind of silly in a way. Yeah, um, I think it was definitely the narrow. I mean, people like now, you know, having done all this research and sort of done a lot of reading outside of um, fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible, I understand, you know, there's also, you can look at how it's a metaphor for human suffering. You can, you know, look at it all these different ways. But um, the version I was taught was that, yeah, everybody who hasn't accepted Christ is going to spend eternity in hell, even if they've never heard the gospel. And that was what really bothered me because, you know, I was at the same time as I was sort of taking these theology courses, I was taking a course on Christian missions. And they we talked a lot about unreached people groups, so people throughout the world who had never heard, who had never basically had contact with a Christian missionary. And it was something insane, like 67% of the world or something. And so according to our theology, all of those people were going to go to hell through no, no fault of their own, um, as far as I was concerned, you know, just because they were born sinners. And um, so I struggled with that. And just like doing the math, I would like try to do calculations of like how many people, how like what percentage <laughs> of the population that is and how many people. And then across history, like if you think about the fact that like whole continents were cut off from the spread of the gospel. You know, all of those people were in hell, too. And I guess adding to that, too, was that the theology I was taught was very inflected by um, Calvinism. So there was this idea of predestination, which is that um, God decides before every person is born who's going to be saved and who's not. And so we really have no free will in terms of accepting Christ or not. And so... On one hand, this just added to the sense of injustice of like, okay, well, even the people who have heard the gospel who don't accept it, that's also not their fault. They were chosen to, to not be saved. Um, and then also it, it made me very self-conscious about the fact that, okay, well, if I'm having these doubts, you know, then maybe I was never saved to begin with. Maybe I'm not one of the chosen people. So it was this very, like, self-reflexive, very, um, I don't know, I got into a really difficult headspace trying to think over all these things. and. Um, wasn't and really didn't get any satisfactory answers from the professors and from other Christians at the time. And mm-hmm. they, these things just resonated with me because when you're a kid and, and you seem like a highly intelligent person, especially smart kids, and they're not all smart parents, um, that you can really spin yourself out on these things. And I, I really could relate. And I just wanted to share that with you. I, I just want to yeah, back, back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was, I could relate to a lot of that to what you're saying. I say we were taught at one point. I mean, the idea of eternal security that we were taught was not really theologically cogent. We, I, I don't know. I think maybe because I attended a lot of different churches and 
Christian camps also, you know, sometimes they would say, once you're saved, you're always saved, you know. And then other people would say, like, well, you know, like when we got to be teenagers, there would be all these calls to maybe re-invite Jesus back into your life because if you did it when you were really young, you might have not been serious about it. And so that creates all this anxiety. And, of course, if you're a child who's already, like, prone to sort of OCD thought patterns, which I think a lot of <laughs> adolescent children are, these things become fixations. And it really does, you know, when there's no... I think when you grow up in the church and there's no dramatic life change that happens where you don't have a personal transformation that you can go back and revisit, the prayer itself and sort of these rituals take on this totemic power that you can really become obsessive about. So, yeah. Hey Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the War Years, that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? Ed's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks apiece. Kyle, A piece? You... Uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah, well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Remova? Uh, what you call it, uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Well, it's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true. Or, eh, at least it's not true for me. What do you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom, well. Are you going to take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. And it's true. I was just a kid until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a purse or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport. I stay on my side and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So, it was 1986... Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. 
I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a bigger squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying... Uh, she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and I, that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Couple stacks, Adam Eve on a raft, Wreckham, and 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what, you living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was. Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait. Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh, yeah. Real well. Just please, no. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We We do do not. not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later. This week on The Trump Diaries, CNN wins its case against Trump, Julian Assange is charged in secret, Melania Trump ousts an aide, Trump rants to Fox News, and is Mike Pence loyal? This is a not very thankful edition of The Trump Diaries. Day 664, November 14th. In a rare piece of a partisanship, Trump endorsed a House bill that would reform the federal prison system, easing some mandatory minimum sentences. That bill has broad support from an unusual coalition that includes the ACLU and the Koch brothers. Trump urged the House to send the bill to the Senate and then to his desk for his signature. Jared Kushner has also been closely involved in prison sentencing reform. The White House argued in federal court that Trump has, quote, broad discretion to regulate access to the White House for journalists. That filing came in response to a suit filed by CNN over Trump's revoking of a press pass for reporter Jim Acosta. Almost every major news organization has filed briefs in support of the suit. Most scholars believe CNN also will win easily on its merits. 
Betsy DeVos introduced new guidelines that will overhaul how colleges handle allegations of sexual assault and harassment. The new rules will largely enhance the rights of the accused, including giving them the ability to cross-examine accusers. The rules also reduce liability for universities and tighten the definition of sexual harassment. Mitch McConnell blocked a vote in the Senate to protect the work of Robert Mueller. Jeff Flake, the outgoing senator from Arizona, made that request. When his move was shot down, Flake threatened to hold up confirmation of any of Trump's judicial appointments. Trump, raging about the continuing recounts in Florida, alleged that certain people who, quote, have absolutely no right to vote of changing their clothes and returning to cast additional ballots in disguise. Sometimes they go to their car, put on a different hat, put on a different shirt, come in and vote again. Trump also claimed falsely that you need ID to buy a box of cereal. He was not asked when he last purchased a box of cereal by his interviewer. Day 665, November 15th. The Florida recount lurched into chaos as Palm Beach missed a deadline due to machines overheating, while other counties also failed to complete machine recounts in time. The race has now moved to manual recounts. The federal judge overseeing those recounts said the situation made Florida, quote, the laughing stock of the world and demanded that the state remedy long-standing problems with their election counts. He also ruled that Florida voters have until Saturday to correct their rejected mail-in and provisional ballots, saying the state's law requiring signatures on ballots to match those on file is being applied unconstitutionally. Currently, however, it does appear that Ron DeSantis has beat Andrew Gillum for the governorship. The race between incumbent Bill Nelson and Rick Scott for the Senate seat remains too close to call. Trump, reportedly deeply depressed over the midterm results, returned to attacking the Russian probe with a wild and wholly unsubstantiated claim that Mueller was horribly threatening witnesses to force them to cooperate in the Russian probe. Again, claiming it is, quote, a total witch hunt like no other in American history, that in all caps, Trump spuriously claimed that Mueller's team had found nothing and was a total mess that has gone absolutely nuts. In related news, Mueller is apparently close with charging Trump confidant Roger Stone with witness tampering. Stone is alleged to have attempted to discredit and intimidate a witness who provided damaging evidence against Stone involving his contacts with Julian Assange. Donald Trump Jr. is also reportedly going to be charged. The USA has also apparently charged Julian Assange in secret. The charges were revealed accidentally in an unrelated federal filing involving a man charged with child trafficking and pornography that resulted in undisclosed matters of national security. It is not clear what the charges would be against Assange. He is currently holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London under claims of asylum. In the latest of shifting explanations involving the death of post-columnist Jamal Khashoggi, Saudi Arabia's public prosecutor charged five men with capital crimes and is seeking the death penalty. The filing claims the men were ordered to detain Khashoggi in Istanbul and return him to Riyadh, but killed him after he resisted. Turkey called that explanation not convincing. In related news, Trump sanctioned the 17 Saudis accused of involvement in the killing of Khashoggi. The CIA has also concluded definitively that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered his killing. Trump reportedly has not yet accepted that. Stormy Daniels' attorney Michael Avenetti was arrested on charges of domestic violence. TMZ reported the accusation was made by Avenetti's estranged wife, only to retract that when she gave a statement emphatically denying any abuse. Avenetti called the charges completely bogus. A far-right conservative activist has been linked to those charges. Trump also claimed his administration is running very smoothly, not at all in chaos or having a meltdown. Under his presidency, Trump claimed the USA, quote, is the envy of the world. Day 666, November 16th. A federal judge today ruled in favor of CNN and reporter Jim Acosta ordering the White House to restore the press credentials that Trump took away. The White House said it would follow that court order. The judge, Tim Kelly of Federal District Court in Washington, also ruled the Trump administration had most likely violated Acosta's due process rights but declined to weigh in on the First Amendment issues. 
Trump appointed Tim Kelly to the bench. Following his loss in court, Trump asserted to reporters to the Oval Office that, quote, we want total freedom of the press, but if journalists don't behave, we'll be back in court and we'll win. Trump also said he has answered a set of questions from special counsel Mueller very easily and will turn them over in a few days. Trump also said he'd been busy and that it had taken some time to complete the answers, but, quote, you always have to be careful answering questions for people who probably have bad intentions. And Democrat Stacey Abrams ended her campaign for governor of Georgia, but did not concede. Let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession, said Abrams, who then ripped into her opponent for voter suppression and irregularities. Abrams said that she planned to start an organization to fight for more equitable voting laws and would soon bring a major federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia for gross mismanagement of this election. Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker privately assured Senator Lindsey Graham that he will not end the Mueller investigation. Whitaker's position has become untenable due to past statements on his part and Trump's. Leading Republicans have now taken urging Trump to nominate an actual attorney general. Trump, however, is apparently reluctant to nominate anyone he doesn't have, quote, a personal relationship with. North Korea announced a successful and highly significant test of, quote, an ultra-modern tactical weapon. It is unclear what that weapon is, but it does not appear to be one that could strike the United States. And Mira Ricardel, the Deputy National Security Advisor, was forced out of the White House by Melania Trump in a highly unusual public spat. Melania's office said that Ricardel had, quote, lost the privilege of working in the White House after a spat over seating on Air Force One. Ricardel was already a highly unpopular and divisive figure in the administration, but it's unusual for a staffer to be publicly forced out by a first lady. Ricardel has since been offered nearly a dozen jobs by Trump, including the ambassadorship to Estonia. And it's been revealed that Betsy DeVos received round-the-clock security from Marshalls since she was confirmed at a cost of some $20 million. No other cabinet member receives an arm detail. Day 667, November 17th. A Mississippi senator involved in a runoff told an audience that it's a great idea to make it harder for liberal folks to vote. Cindy Hyde-Smith also said that if she was invited to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. Both comments were leaked to a Mississippi website and have been confirmed as authentic. Hyde-Smith has refused to apologize for the comments. She actually faces a black Democrat, Mike Espy, in a runoff for a U.S. Senate seat. One-eighth of all inchings in the United States took place in Mississippi. In Florida, Bill Nelson conceded to Rick Scott after a manual recount found Scott to have a 10,000 vote lead. Florida remains solidly Republican with the result and gave the GOP increased control over the Senate. However, the Democrats continued to pick up House seats with a plus 39 advantage after Orange County, which is the birthplace of Richard Nixon, was flipped by Gil Cisneros. Trump gave campaign donor the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Miriam Adelson and her husband Sheldon Adelson gave Trump's presidential campaign $30 million in the final months of the 2016 race. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is the nation's highest civilian honor. Trump has apparently been asking aides and advisors whether they think Vice President Mike Pence is loyal. Outside advisors say Trump may be considering dropping Pence from the ticket in 2020. Day 668, November 18th. Trump gave a testy interview to Fox News' Chris Wallace that left the normally serene newsman baffled. During the interview, Trump said he would not listen to a tape of the death of post-columnist Jamal Khashoggi obtained by Turkish intelligence, saying, quote, we have the tape, I don't want to hear the tape, no reason for me to hear the tape, it's a suffering tape. Trump also said he would not sit for questions with the special counsel, quote, we've wasted enough time in this witch hunt and the answer probably is we're finished. Trump also claimed he had no idea his acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, had openly disparaged the Mueller investigation. This is demonstrably untrue. 
Trump added that three to five people would leave his administration in the coming weeks. Among those said to be Outer Homeland Security's Christian Nielsen, who's apparently run out of patience with Trump after repeatedly explaining to him that he cannot make decisions on the border unilaterally. Trump also attacked retired Admiral William H. McRaven as a Hillary Clinton fan and an Obama backer. McRaven oversaw the capture and the killing of Osama bin Laden and is considered a venerated figure in military circles. McRaven, however, had criticized Trump three months prior in a Wall Street Journal op-ed after Trump stripped James Brannan of his security clearance. Trump said McRaven should have apprehended bin Laden sooner. An incredulous Wallace asked Trump why he couldn't even credit McRaven and Obama with bin Laden's downfall. Trump did not respond. Wallace also pressed Trump on why after two years he has not visited Iraq and Afghanistan if he's such a backer of the military. Trump first took a shot at Obama saying he couldn't forgive what he did to our military. He then insisted the Secret Service had not allowed me to go to the American cemetery in Paris. Wallace then asked him why he didn't go to Arlington. Trump replied he should have, but I was extremely busy on calls for the country. We did a lot of calling, as you know. Trump finally promised to make a visit to Afghanistan despite his unbelievably busy schedule, on top of which you have these phony witch hunts. In fact, Trump's public schedule for Veterans Day was empty and he was in what the White House calls executive time, which means he was watching TV and tweeting. His Twitter timeline on that day showed he was misunderstanding trade deficits, placing new conspiracy theories about election fraud, and feuding with the president of France. Wallace pointed out to Trump that Republicans had suffered an historic loss in the House, with Democrats now on track to pick up 40 seats. Trump replied that he had won the Senate. We won. That's a tremendous victory. Nobody talks about that. That's a far greater victory than it is for the other side. Number two, I wasn't on the ballot. Trump continued to rail against the media, even after Wallace took him to task for being, quote, a beacon of repression around the world. Trump responded, it's fake news. It's disgusting fake news. I don't think they have sources. I think they just make it up like it's fiction. Trump, unsurprisingly, called himself the greatest president of all time, giving himself an A-plus when Wallace asked him how he measured up with presidents like FDR, Abe Lincoln, George Washington, and Ronald Reagan. Trump then said, quote, can I go higher? Hate crimes have surged 17% under Trump again this year. It is the third such year in a row to see such an increase. 58% of Americans now say they want to see a new president in office by 2020. Three Republicans, including Jeff Flake, are now considering a primary challenge to Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Mertz spoke to Viewpoint Magazine's Magali Miranda Alcazar and Robert Cavouris about the migrant caravan making its way to the American border. Alcazar and Cavouris discussed solidarity, safety in numbers, and the demonization of the disenfranchised by the political elite. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to help us understand what the migrant caravan is really all about and what it has the potential to be, Robert Kavouris and Magali Miranda co-wrote the Viewpoint magazine article, The Border Crossing Us. Welcome to This is Hell, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me. Robert is a member of the Viewpoint Editorial Collective, as is MAGA. Welcome to This is Hell, MAGA. Hi, thanks for having me. She's also a member of the editorial collective at Viewpoint Magazine and co-founder of the Marxist Zikanisma Multimedia Project SALT. Robert is a Ph.D. candidate in the History of Consciousness Department at UC Santa Cruz. Maga is a second-year M.A. Ph.D. student in Chicana Chicano Studies at UCLA. As the website for Viewpoint Magazine states, it aims to understand the struggles that define our conjuncture, critically reconstruct radical history, and reinvent Marxism for our time. The 
Collective includes. Past This Is Hell guests, Cinzia Ruza and Asad Haider. You can follow Viewpoint Magazine on Twitter at Viewpoint Mag and find all of their writing at ViewpointMag.com. Maga, let's start with you. At the beginning of the article, you start by quoting a past guest on our show, Mike Davis, writing in his first book, the 1986 work Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class, quote, Ultimately, no doubt, the left in the United States will have to confront the fact that there is never likely to be an American Revolution, as classically imagined by the late 19th, early 20th century American socialist Daniel DeLeon, Eugene Debs, or 20th century American Socialist Party leader Jim Cannon. If socialism is to arrive one day in North America, it is far more probable that it will be by virtue of a combined hemispheric process of revolt that overlaps boundaries and interlaces movements. Whether it's from the right or left, MAGA, how essential is it to any revolution that it is international if not global, because last month we had Eleanor Penny on the show and she had posted the In These Times article, Steve Bannon's European Dream, about what Eleanor calls Bannon's plans for global white nationalism. And Bannon has given many speeches in Europe that backs up Eleanor's argument. Do you have any sense of the relative success of the right and the left to get their message out internationally? And how important is it to any movement to become an international movement? Yeah, I mean, we, I think that the hegemonic view um, of globalization is very much present in the media, exactly what you're saying about Steve Bannon. Like, the way that the President of the United States is able to have um, some kind of legitimacy to be, even be able to send 5,200 troops to the border um to um, argue that it's a kind of national threat when, you know, a lot of scholars and activists have pointed to the fact that it is a, um, it's part of international human rights law that um, individuals can petition for asylum at the border. Um, The kind of looming threat of um, globalization and immigration um, has gained a kind of currency in the rhetoric of the right wing as like a threat. Like, so much so that it even um, um, can, that it that it can um, get, give legitimacy to that kind of um, violence against migrants. Um, and on the, and the, actually, this is the impetus for us writing um, the piece was that um, we felt as though the left has been in a kind of period of decline and one in which the kind of internationalist um, imagination of the left wing has kind of um, been forgotten. And one of our goals has been to kind of remember that. Um, We had a really wonderful um, response to our piece by Jonah Walters, who works on um, issues in Nicaragua. And he talked about um, a bit about, I was just reading it, I thought it was amazing. Um, it really um, contributed to the argument that we were making about um, how the American working class is all, always already um, transnational, but he talked about this phenomenon in the 80s in Nicaragua um, that, you know, there was so much international solidarity um, in from 1980 to 1986 in Nicaragua. 100,000 North Americans visited Nicaragua, um, which has, you know, no more than 4 million inhabitants. 
Um, so much so that it led um, the kind of left wing in Nicaragua, the Marxists, to develop um, a, a theoretical framework that they called, um, you know, they they had um, ideologically, they said that there were three parts of the revolution, three parts of revolutionary forces, workers, peasants, and the ideological middle. That so much, the, the solidarity was so strong, the international solidarity, that they had to um, add a fourth force, which was... Um, the solidarity activists, and that spoke to like the strength of a kind of um, cohesive at the time idea of um, the international scope of of the working class, and I think it's something that we tried really hard in this piece to kind of re- recover. So, Robert, if the revolution must be international in nature, what happens? when the left here in the U.S. or wherever it happens to be falls into terms that support patriotism, if not nationalism? How much is patriotism and nationalism a distraction from the U.S. left or the left anywhere uh, for pursuing revolution? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back at the history of of the left, the history of the socialist movement, of the workers' movement, this has been a kind of persistent problem. I mean, kind of famously, this is what uh, Lenin, this, this led to the break in the Second International at the beginning of World War I, when a number of European uh, social democratic parties decided to support their governments uh, in, in a, what Lenin considered an imperialist war. Um, so uh, from that perspective, the, the idea that one, that a movement of the left would support uh, you know, something like a, an international war that would um, prioritize patriotism um, was completely antithetical to the idea of internationalism, which would rather mean that these movements have solidarity with each other across national borders rather than falling into the trap of a kind of solidarity with their states or with their leadership. But I think it's a strong temptation sometimes um, because, I mean, you know, especially when you're thinking about. Um, like trying to establish a sort of electoral appeal or when one might imagine that the kind of ideological center in a given uh, nation state requires or, or appealing to that center through elections would require a kind of patriotism, it could seem like that's a shortcut to winning people over to socialist ideas or something like that. Um, but I think that's, that's precisely, uh, you know, Lenin saw it as a danger correctly, I think, and I think it's still a danger. I think it's even more a danger now uh, in a context where if there's to some extent a resurgent leftism in the United States right now, maybe um, in response to a resurgent rightism, uh, it's also one that doesn't have those kind of uh, obvious international connections. There's no clear international organization. The DSA, the Democratic Socialists, which have grown extensively, are not part, for instance, of an international organization right now. Um, so I think I think it's a real challenge, and, and that's partially, a, like Maga said, one of the things we want to get at with this piece. Maga, uh, one of the things that it was that you write about is how in of the. Uh 
migrant caravan after two weeks of arduous travel from Honduras passing through Guatemala and into southern Mexico. Members of the migrant caravan received an offer from the Mexican government opt to stay in Chiapas or Oaxaca, the two southernmost states of Mexico, where they would be eligible to for entry into a temporary work program with a regularization of migration status that would allow access to other benefits like health care, education, and mobility within those two states. The plan, called Your At Home, was part of an, a larger regime of Central American migration management that Mexico has carried out in recent years with the support of the United States, which is kind of surprising to me. So just make sure I can clarify this, MAGA. Uh, so the U.S., the Obama administration in the past, and currently the Trump administration, supported and supports an, Im- Im- uh, an immigrant program that offers a temporary work program and a regularization of migration migration status that includes benefits like health care and education, but in Mexico, not in the U.S. Is the U.S. spending public money to make Mexico not the U.S.? As the quote on the base of the Statue of Liberty suggests, the destination for the tired, poor, huddled masses, the wretched refuse, the homeless and tempest tossed, yearning to breathe free. Are we trying to create are we allowing are we supporting a migration policy in Mexico that is far more humane than the migration policy that we have here in the United States? Yeah, and I mean, you put a very um, important shift in the kind of um, management, what, what's what been called the management of migration um, by m- scholars of migration. I think increasingly um, there's been a couple of, of major shifts, one of which you're pointing to is the um, extension of American sovereignty to um, Mexican territory, including, you know, the United States government has been... Um, spending a, a large part of its kind of budget on um, reinforcing the border, on reinforcing the southern border of Mexico, um, which is sort of unprecedented for for another country to kind of, um, um, to kind of um, set the agenda of another nation's sovereign um, borders, which is kind of ironic because you hear the Trump administration talking about, like, respect our um, our sovereignty of our board, the sovereignty of our borders. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so, um, it, you know, another feature of this is also kind of the perception of, you know, what I was talking about earlier, the perception of um, immigrants in the U.S. as um, illegal, which is called illegality, even though, right, you, I, like I said, there's international human rights law that says that, you know, any person can apply for asylum. Um, and and I think in many cases, I mean, at least, you know, even in the liberal paradigm, a lot of these folks do have um, claims to asylum um, because they're escaping um, violence and, um, you know, sexual assault and um, all of the things that, um, you know, capital has made it the the refuse, like the refuse, the garbage can of, of globalization. So, um, yeah, so the fact that the migrant caravan um, was unwilling to accept this kind this kind of, um, the normalization of this new kind of regime, again, we were trying to highlight represents a, a character of, of the American working class at, at a hemispheric level and at a at an international level, right? That it's not just um, 
that that because they're migrants, they're somehow um, passive or just vulnerable. Like you know, this these acts, small acts of um, agency and refusal represent a a political horizon. I think that's important for us to look at as American socialists. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.